There are two things that are often missing in the way we talk about the climate crisis, and those are the issues of justice and equity. On season three of Heat of the Moment, a podcast from Foreign Policy in partnership with the Climate Investment Funds, host John D. Sutter explores the concept of a just transition away from fossil fuels and hopefully toward a net zero future. Listen to season three of Heat of the Moment, a just transition wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boyler. If you think back honestly to 2016 and all the factors that contributed to Donald Trump becoming president, the mainstream media's fixation on emails, that's Hillary Clinton's email practices and hacked Democratic Party emails, that should loom largest, or at least very large. The hurt effect of the media, the sheer volume of coverage entirely out of proportion to the importance of either those stories on the merits to the stakes of the upcoming election. What probably looms less large is the email saga's connection to an earlier media fixation, and that is on the terrorist attack on a U.S. facility in Benghazi, Libya in 2012, or to be a bit more precise on the Republican Party's various characterizations of the attack in Benghazi. It's not that Benghazi was a nothing burger, sort of far from it. It was clear from the outset that Republican interest in Benghazi wasn't rooted in some sincere and consistent concern about the loss of American lives in foreign war zones. At that point, thousands of Americans had died tragically and preventably in wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. They were interested in it because Hillary Clinton had been Secretary of State at the time, and they viewed it as an opportunity to damage the Democratic Party's frontrunner for president. And so they did what I think they often do, and they sort of feigned anger and fanned conspiracy theories and tried to turn it into sort of a Watergate-sized scandal in the minds of as many members of the public as possible. Eventually, the returns on their Benghazi obsession diminished. Clinton herself testified credibly on the subject for 11 hours before a House panel dominated by Republicans who hoped she would self-destruct. And ultimately, there was just no scandal there, just a tragedy that merited an after-action report untainted by politics, reforms to American foreign policy, and just how we deploy our forces and government officials around the world. But it was through the multitude of Benghazi investigations that Republicans got wind of the Clinton mail server. So the media hurting around Benghazi gave way to hurting around emails, and the rest is history. So I've had an uncanny feeling over the past few weeks that we're living through the early stages of something similar to emails and Benghazi. It's not one thing, but a few things. The biggest probably was the revelation that Joe Biden's legal team had discovered classified documents among his vice presidential records. And that was like a bat signal for journalists who indulge false equivalencies and treat perception, by which I mean how the public interprets or misinterprets facts, as more important than the facts themselves. Why? Because Donald Trump is under criminal investigation for hoarding classified documents. And the Biden documents disclosure provided reporters an opportunity to prove they're sort of equally tough on both parties. And that could take the form of classic 
both sides do it journalism. Or it could take the slightly subtler form of couching false equivalence in the language of optics. So here I'm quoting one reporter. One of the most significant costs to Biden of the documents case is the opportunity cost. That's New York Times reporter Peter Baker. Democrats will now have a hard time using Trump's mishandling of classified papers against him, even though the particulars of the two cases are markedly different. So right there is the acknowledgement that the most important thing about the Biden documents imbroglio is that the two cases are markedly different. Evidence suggests Trump stole specific classified documents, lied about it, refused to return them to the government when subpoenaed to do so. By contrast, the little evidence we have suggests the classified documents in Biden's records got swept up by happenstance during the Obama-Trump transition. That's consistent with why it turns out Vice President Mike Pence had some classified documents in his records, too. But that hardly mattered, apparently, because Republicans would falsely treat the two cases as somehow comparable. And so the Biden document story must be covered aggressively out of proportion to its material significance and in a way that created the, again, false impressions that the two stories were equally significant. More recently, just this past week, really, there was Balloon Ghazi or Balloon Gate, where mainstream reporters allowed Republicans in Congress and on Fox News to lead them around by the nose with, I don't know how else to put it, just plainly affected outrage over the discovery of a Chinese surveillance balloon over U.S. territory. And then there's the through the eyes of Babe's coverage of the Republican Party's taking hostage of the debt limit. There's mainstream media's stenographic coverage of the House GOP's new so-called weaponization committee. There was a big New York Times piece about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's crackdown on the teaching of black history and the banning of certain books in classrooms, which bore the headline, DeSantis takes on the education establishment and builds his brand. So here we are again, a rash of stories that in effect normalize aberrant Republican behavior, that abnormalize Democratic behavior to create a false balance between the parties, and that treat one party's systematic efforts to mislead people as inherently unnewsworthy. Like, what could be more worth digging into than that question, right? And I want to be clear here, even though it probably doesn't sound this way, that my purpose isn't to do any special pleading for Democrats or to shield them from warranted scrutiny. It's just to say that conveying reality isn't as simple as making sure that the facts you report are true or that the analytical points you make are logically coherent. It's so you at some point have to use subjective judgment about language and story placement and sheer volume of reporting so that news consumers can easily gather where various stories fit into the pecking order of, I'm inventing a new word here, consequentialness. If a hostile alien force invaded the planet, that'd warrant more alarmist coverage than literally anything else on Earth. If two cases are markedly different, to use Peter Baker's terminology, treating them as similar becomes misleading. If one party threatens to force the country to default on its debt unless the other party adopts its agenda, describing it as a quote-unquote fight over the debt limit doesn't accurately convey what is happening. After the 2016 election, there was at least passing debate among practitioners and critics alike over press failures in covering that election and whether the national political media would learn any lasting lessons from those failures and then make changes to their professional habits. 
And I worry that the evidence of the past few weeks, if not since, say, the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, or maybe before that, suggests the answer to that question is no. And that, to me, raises a pretty troubling further question. If that couldn't make American political journalism rethink its practices, what could? One of the best critics of those practices was also a journalism practitioner. Her name is Margaret Sullivan. She was a respected and fearless public editor of the New York Times in the last decade, which is how I first encountered her. But before that, she reported for and edited the Buffalo News, and more recently has written a memoir called Newsroom Confidential that examines some of these very practices and the question of whether they can be improved upon. And she is my guest this week. It is great to talk to you again, Margaret. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be with you. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. So one of the most shocking revelations in it is that you once wrote a column supporting Gerald Ford's decision to pardon <laughs> Richard Nixon. Yes, of course. Can you explain yourself? Yes, I, I can explain myself because I was 15 uh, <laughs> and, I, and I was or maybe 16, but I was writing editorials for the Narden Academy Kaleidoscope. And uh, I don't know, I took some controversial stands, I guess. So do you still stand by the No, the I don't think it was no nope, nope. I think I, I don't I don't like that point of view. I'm not sure where it came from. I think I was possibly influenced by one or more family members who thought it would be, you know, calming for the nation to have this happen, but uh but I try to think for myself now. <laughs> I mean I think Ever I was since I turned well, I seventeen, I've I've tried to think for myself. <laughs> I, I wasn't alive quite yet, but I, th I think, I mean, it wasn't just your parents or if it was, they, they presumably got that sensibility from what was then a more concentrated mainstream media, where I think that sort of became the conventional wisdom at the time. Probably so. And there certainly was a more concentrated mainstream media, which, you know, was... In our household, it was two daily newspapers, the Buffalo Evening News and the morning paper, the Courier Express, but also the evening newscasts, you know, with, I don't know, I guess, Huntley, Brinkley, Walter Cronkite, all those people. And and in the background, even though we were not daily subscribers to the New York Times or the Washington Post, but they were certainly involved in setting the agenda. So someday we have to have you back to sort of talk about that, like how your parents came to accept the wisdom that pardoning Richard Nixon was prudent, wise, um, and just how they picked that up sort of ambiently, maybe mm -hmm. not even intentionally from what they what they were just hearing and reading yeah. in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, but for now, I want to talk about your book um, and the, the themes of the book. Um, I don't want to spoil too much of it for our listeners, but I think it's fair to say that you weave the story of, of your career, of your experiences in what you call reality-based journalism uh, together with specific critiques of how reality-based journalism has operated in practices uh, and how its failures have contributed to a, a collapse in trust in mainstream journalism per se. Is yeah, that about that's right. Fair? I mean, it's a memoir. People have called it a memoir slash manifesto, but I think it's actually more of a memoir slash critique. So it it, it you know it does use my career and my history as a, a way to look at these things. And some of it is, you know, sort of war stories from a newsroom or several newsrooms. But some of it is trying to make sense of what's happened to, for example, public trust in the news media since um, since 
the time of Watergate and the Pentagon Papers when some 76 or 75 percent of the public thought that the news media was pretty trustworthy. <laughs> and that has just declined and declined and declined so that it's it's actually well, well below 50 percent now. Um, so you address at various points in the book and, and at the end, the question of what leaders in media can do to lift that number back up, to sort of restore public trust in media. Um, and and as I read the book, I kind of divided the forces you identified div- driving the distrust in journalism into three, maybe maybe three and a half categories. One is sort of like active active God forces, where you know there's been a society wide collapse of trust in all kinds of institutions. Um, Relatedly, the internet and social media inundates people with all kinds of information. A lot of it's bogus, but it fosters, almost just by the sheer volume of it, confusion about what to believe. Um, the second category is is I, you know what you can really lay at the feet of journalists and and media outlets, which is you know failure on their own term, and there have been multiple high profile instances over over recent decades of fabulism and plagiarism and just getting big stories like weapons of mass destruction in Iraq wrong. Category three um, is confined, I think, to the realm of political reporting, or at least that's where you see it most. Um, And so it's divided politically. On the one hand, you have a a, a systematic decades-long effort by the conservative movement writ large, I think, to to convince conservative Americans, at least, that journalists are elites, corrupt Democratic Party propagandists, whatever you want to call it, and that they shouldn't be trusted and that you should get your source of information directly from us or from our approved sources. Um, on the other, reporters have sort of responded to, to those consistent critiques from the right with big showy displays of of being tough on both sides uh, and in, in doing so misleading people about really sort of basic important things like what's at stake in an election or which parties or politicians are more extreme or corrupt or dishonest. Is that, do you accept that sort of breakdown? Or yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, when you when you look at the, I guess, the last part of it, which is what's wrong with politics reporting today, you know, it is partly that there's a whole culture there that you know you've you've described somewhat of this kind of you know defensive, wanting to look fair, and so therefore bending over backwards to um, be like performatively neutral. But there's also the and I'm not sure if this was part of one of your categories, um, but there's also the the power and the influence of the right of right wing media and the way that it has really, um, it, you know, to some extent brainwashed people and, you know, served as a very effective uh, partner with uh, conservative, if we want to accept that term, right wing politicians. Um, and, 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 you know, office seekers and so on. Um, so it's kind of two things, you know, it's kind of twofold. It's like the right has this sort of megaphone, very powerful one. The left not only doesn't have that, and I wouldn't want to see the mainstream media 
do that, but they also tend to sort of cower and not even do their legitimate job correctly because they're afraid of being called, uh, you know, liberal or something or spouting DNC talking points and all that. And I mean, there there is a, a real, I think I, I know this, that there is a real fear um, on the part of a lot of mainstream journalists, news leaders, corporations that run media companies to be, you know, somehow branded as leftist or sympathetic to the DNC or, you know, leaning toward the Democrats. They, they don't want that. So they do everything they can. The problem is no matter what they do and how much they move to the right, it will never, ever be enough. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the setup. It's intended to make them move to the right. And when they do, that's not enough. Now you have to do it again. Right. There, there, there's never, it, it's sort of like an appeasement strategy that, that never works and never has worked. I didn't actually mention the, the, the size and power of the right wing media. And just thinking about it as you were talking, um, you know, it, it's growth and the increase in its power tracks, I think, with the evolution of how Republicans and cons- conservative movement professionals uh, have worked the refs and criticized the media, right? Like I think when I was even when I was coming up, but you know from from the Watergate era when Roger Ailes was like, we need to prevent something like this from happening to a Republican president ever again through maybe even like the earlier mid two thousands, the Critique was more like, you know, the media is biased. You, you need to tackle the bias problem. You need to balance out liberal bias stuff with pro-conservative stuff or whatever. Um, and I think maybe in, in part it's because they didn't have, at the time at least, a, a, an alternative media apparatus to, to drive their supporters to. But as Fox grew in power and a bunch of other um, media institutions flourished and, and, and um, the internet and social media ex- like grew the megaphone of, of conservative ideas and conservative rhetoric, um, they really could just say, don't ever trust these sources of, of news. They're always lying to you and get your news and information from any of these institutions, Fox News, Breitbart, OAN, Newsmax, whatever. Um, and, or directly from directly from Trump or directly from right. somebody on social media. And and it and given that they could do that and really could drive tens of millions of people to do that, um, they could stop trying to re- like work the refs so much as just say we want to destroy mainstream media as a vocation or at least irretrievably poison faith in media among half the country. Yeah. I mean, Trump, you know, who is specializes in saying the quiet part out loud, actually said to Leslie Stahl of CBS, uh, you know why I do this, right? Meaning, you know why I disparage you people uh, and try to tell everyone that you're fake news so that, and, and this I think is almost a direct quote, so that when you write a bad story about me, nobody believes it. I mean, very upfront about saying if if I destroy trust in the news media, I don't have to suffer the consequences of my own actions. And I think that 
we saw that happen over and over again, certainly during the 2015-2016 campaign and throughout the Trump administration. So this gets to like the two of my questions are one that I'm really curious to hear your answer to. This is the first one. Um, So like whether journalism is accurate or not is something journalists can control, right? And so in your book, when you allude to like reporting failures um, and have suggested both as public editor and now as, as an author of this book, ways to reduce the chances that that kind of thing happened, like that can work. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty clear you go from A to B, but um, whether partisans try to undermine institutions that serve as checks on their power is not really in the control of anyone who works in media. And so I, I wonder if you think it's even impossible for faith in media to be restored so long as Republicans and the conservative movement deem reality-based journalism to be a, just a bunch of junk and corrupt propaganda. Like they would have to have a change of heart, right, but to, to get the trust in journalism number up close to or above 50%, right? I mean, there's never going to be a return to, you know, three, I don't think there's going to be a return to three quarters of the public, the American public saying, yeah, you know what? I pretty much, yep. I think the news media is pretty good that you're not going to see that. Um, But I do think that good journalists can make some changes about how they function to maybe improve trust or maybe just do their jobs better. You know, and a lot of it, Brian, comes down to things like, how a story is framed, what words are used, to what extent are you going to parrot and magnify falsehoods? Um, you know, th- that headline that you read about uh, about Ron DeSantis. I mean, I, for people who follow um, the pitch bots, uh, the New York Times <laughs> and the Washington Post pit, pitch bots on Twitter, which basically, you know, present these sort of exaggerated, sort of exaggerated uh, ways that stories are fr- are framed in a ridiculous way. I mean, sometimes reality totally measures up to those things. I mean, they're just, the, and that's one of them. You know, when you think of what's going on in Florida with, you know, all of this stuff that's happening and you see a headline like that, it is, it is pretty, it's pretty bad. So I think it's bad. Um, and I know that, you know, Fellow travelers of ours agree it's bad. And I thought it was bad when the cable news channels would air footage of Trump's empty podium or lectern uh, during the 2015-2016 campaign. Um, I thought a lot of how they covered that uh, that election was obviously bad and like identified it before the election, right? It was not only in hindsight that we realized that there was something amiss there. Um, but I wonder how that's translated uh, down to the uh, the broad center left of the population in the United States, right? Like, I think Democratic Party actors have obvious frustrations with the political press, um, but they've never tried to, like, systematically discredit MSNBC or CNN or the New York Times. Um, but I think somewhat perversely, liberal Americans became more trusting and protective of the press after 
the failures of 2016 because Trump and the right were so openly bent on destroying journalism as an institution, as a vocation, uh, that the, you know, the, the resistance or the broad opposition to Trump thought that now was the time to defend these institutions, subscribe to newspapers. And that was salutary at the moment, but it, I don't see that the failures that you alluded to in like treat, you know, just uncritically echoing lies and distortions or whatever it is has translated into public distrust. It seems to have coincided with an increase in trust, at least among that faction of the country. Well, there was a little bit of an uptick uh, right after Trump was elected that, you know, in, in the level of trust overall. And it and it did reflect exactly what you're talking about, that people felt like, oh, you know, we need to be well informed about this insane thing that's happened. And we need to subscribe to The Washington Post because democracy dies in darkness and uh, all of that good stuff. But I think that has I think as it, it seemed so closely related to Trump and as Trump has sort of, you know, become less surprising to us and we kind of have his number as a country, which doesn't mean people won't vote for him. Um, I, I, I don't think that's an animating, uh, uh, reason anymore. And I, and I have seen the numbers that ticked up also come back down. So, you know, yeah, I mean, and it wasn't like it, it never was a radical change because it was a change only on one side of the aisle. Right. Do you do you think that there's a you know a plausible series of events like perhaps culminating in the uh, election of Ron DeSantis instead of Donald Trump somebody a little bit more polished and a little bit less you know openly hostile or violently hostile <laughs> towards the media um where the liberal half of the country or the more liberal half of the country says, all right, you know, like, we don't need to rush to your defense this time. And the numbers fall further. And that finally creates the reckoning that I think we both wish had happened after, after 2016. I don't think so. I mean, you know, there's another factor that we haven't talked about here, which is the way the whole media ecosystem has changed over the years. And one of the big things that's happened is that local newspapers have you know, really dried up and almost gone away in some places. And so this kind of common understanding that you would have in a place like Buffalo or uh, many other metro areas has has really diminished. So, you know, that's really how people were getting a lot of their news. And that isn't coming back. I mean, that whole ecosystem has changed and is, you know, it's not going to return. So I I don't really see, you know, that scenario playing out. I do think, though, that, I mean, something I would love to see happen, and I think it's a little unlikely, but something I would love to see happen is for newsroom leaders, top editors, top politics editors, um, news directors, people like that, to actually stop thinking for a minute uh, or stop thinking as much as they do about engagement and about numbers and about, you know, profits and about, uh, uh, you know, ways to make sure we have the audience so we have the advertising, you know, the whole business imperative. Mm -hmm. And to think 
more about what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, it's so basic. You know, we are in a the only, I think, constitutionally protected uh, profession uh, that there is. So we ought to take that seriously. You know, we have a mission to inform the public so they can self-govern. And I don't know, I don't hear a lot of talk about that. And I think it's it's not addressed. I think it needs to be actually front and center. And while it's kind of assumed, yeah, 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 we know that, then you look at the reporting and you don't see it reflected there. You said unlikely, you, you like possible, but unlikely. How, how would you, in if it, how would you set up a situation where you get that conversation started and it starts down a path that might actually end in changes like the ones you described? Well, I think it has to come from individual top editors. Uh, and you know, I, I'm a, I think that Joe Kahn at the New York Times, I've I've read him, I've read his comments on things, and I think that he, you know, does get that. Um, but you know, he's a pretty quiet, reserved guy. I don't think he's about to lead a journalism movement that is gonna, you know, he probably could because he's the editor of the New York Times. But I I think like so many things, it comes down to individual leadership uh at the top. And you know, there are so many pressures on news organizations and leaders of newsrooms that, I mean, I'm sorry to say that I don't think that this thing we're talking about is really rises to the top where they're like having heavy talks with their staffs about, you know, what's our mission and how can we get it across and how can we stop doing this stuff that we're doing? I I just don't think that happens. Do you think, I guess maybe specifically at the New York Times, but I guess all these institutions have, you know, broad remit beyond American partisan politics. Um, But do you think that that the leaders of of those institutions, is it that they, you know, they have foreign desks and investigative desks and culture, you know, it's a big thing. And the New York Times does a lot, I think, of the other stuff exceptionally well. And so if you're in the position of leading the whole thing, um, you know, you might look down at the total output of reporting um, and say, this is going pretty well. Um, But you you need to, you need, if you want to reform the things we're talking about, you need to take special interest in the, in the politics desk, which is you can view it as just one desk among many, but it's the you know the most powerful in some sense right. in shaping the rest of our lives. One of the things that I I think is interesting to think about as a you know just a way to sort of do a quarter turn on how we think about this stuff is what if what if we started referring to politics or political reporters as government reporters. You know, I, I like that from your book. I think that's I really, I mean, <laughs> I think it's a way to sort of go, oh, is that what we're supposed to be covering? Not the palace intrigue, not the gossip, not the Democrats are in disarray, not how someone's burnishing his brand uh, by removing books from school libraries, but actually government. This is how we're governed. And, you know, I also, you know, I'm always talking about people as news consumers. And sometimes I catch myself and I say, you know, AKA citizens, you know, this is actually what it's about. It's about government. It's about, it's about being a citizen. It's about elections, uh, voting and being informed. So, you know, it's, it, it sounds a little dreary, you know, but, and, and, you know, 
I think there's this sort of savvy style. Jay Rosen calls it the savvy style of of political reporting, where you know you're just a little bit smarter and more sophisticated than the electorate and then your readership, and so you you know you take on this sort of smug tone, and I, I don't like that. So you know, if you could hypnotize uh, Joe Khan or just have a conversation, <laughs> just have a conversation with him, you know, one thing would be to say, look, like de-emphasize among your political reporters this idea that they're covering politics so much as government. Um, and you could try to persuade him that the sort of tools and tricks that political reporters use in their writing and in their in their fact-gathering can like create a distorted view of, of what what's really happening. And then the hope would be that that would kind of filter down to the desks themselves, and then we'd have just a better output um, that would just be easier to defend, harder for people wearing their critic hats like us to nitpick. Right. I mean, I think that who do you appoint to be the top editor of the politics desk? And why do you appoint that person to that role? I mean, that that would make a big difference. You know, if you sort of set the if you set up the job as um, you know, we want to. We don't want to do this kind of both sides do it reporting. We want to. Our, the gist of our reporting on elections and on politicians and all of that should be public spirited. Should be to serve the public, give them the information they need, um, not to do all this other stuff that we're talking about. I mean, I think that would be huge. And you can also say, well. The New York Times is not the problem. It's everything else out there. But the Times is still, even now, very influential. And um, and it affects the whole system, I think. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that two of my questions in particular were I was very excited to ask you about. Um, this is the second one. Um, our mutual friend, uh, James Fallows, wrote a book, a great and and really impressively durable book about this topic in the 1990s mm. called Breaking the News. Um, so he's been on to some of these problems for the better part of 30 years. Um, and in his newsletter last year reviewing your book, um, he wrote that he's essentially lost hope. So like you think it's unlikely. He thinks that the chances are basically 0%. Um, that internal change, like we're talking about is possible. I'll quote him. He wrote, I am learning to accept that our mainstream media will not adapt to the needs of this moment in our public life. Having talked and written about institutional bias of the sort for many decades, I'm beginning now to accept that they are not going to change. This is how it's going to be. I don't need to keep pointing this out. <laughs> Why is he wrong? Well, he's not wrong. That he's he's right. But I tend to be a little bit more optimistic. And even if I'm not truly optimistic, I'm hopeful. And there's a difference. And you know, you can try. You can you can try to make it better, even at the margins. Um, and I believe in doing that. I don't really like to give up on these things, which is why, you know, I thought when I left the Washington Post uh in the summer, just this past, you know, like less than a year ago, um, summer of 22, I was like, well, that's good. You know, I've been 40 years in journalism and I don't need to do this anymore. And I'm tired of beating my head against the wall. 
But I got the opportunity to start writing a column for The Guardian U.S. recently, and I realized, you know what? I actually am not done. I I want to keep sort of hammering away at this stuff because I think it matters. And I also think that people who are well-intentioned and who are smart and do good work need to have the help of having it constantly explained and sort of put out there and have the argument made. I mean, I, I just, I don't, I don't want to give up and I refuse to give up. Jim's next paragraph or a couple paragraphs later that I didn't actually. Click and by the way, I mean, Jim is just great and he's, you know, he's so perceptive and he sees around corners and saw this coming uh, pre-internet, by the way. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, I can't, I can't argue with him on, uh, <laughs> on the facts really. I, uh, I, I won't. Um, no, I feel the same way. Um, but his, his, what he says, he's sort of moved on to, and I don't really think these are like mutually exclusive means of trying to reform media is that people who are not currently part of those institutions, um, should build new institutions that have the, you know, at least maybe eventually in some or some institutions like just on their own can compete with the sort of reality-based journalism institutions that currently exist. Um, and that either those could supplant what we currently have or that the example of doing it better um, might pressure uh, the the older institutions to reform themselves in a way that just, you know, um, hit and run criticisms like they face now just can't do. Yeah. Um, do you do you think that that's a viable method of sort of evolving reality based I mean, journalism in a better direction? I think that you know, you have to do a lot of things at once if you want things to improve. And that certainly is something that should happen. I think another thing to do is to, you know, there's a sort of management motto, catch them doing something right. Um, And I try to have, I've tried to do that in my columns, you know, like find someplace that's actually doing the stuff that you think is good and you know, elevate it, tell people about it and hope it's sort of contagious. Um, I wrote about this Harrisburg public radio station that every time they, uh, I mean, they were doing this for a while. Uh, Every time they wrote about the Pennsylvania delegation, they would remind people that this legislator actually voted to invalidate the election. You know, like, don't, don't, let people forget that this really kind of big thing happened or the way the Philadelphia Inquirer um, talked about the about audits, you know, supposed audits of of um, of the election, refusing to use the word audit because these things weren't audits, you know. And so when you see people sort of making those kinds of decisions for principled and smart and good reasons, I think it's really important to recognize it. So that's, you know, perhaps a version of what Jim is talking about, which is develop new news organizations that are going to do it better and give up on the old ones. I I just think you have to do a lot of different things and I'm not ready to give up on the old ones. Well, and, and I, I, you know, to, I think what, I think what you're saying is that if large numbers of people, people who have profiles themselves identify and celebrate journalism done what we would call right, 
that, that it might be contagious among other outlets and other competitor journalists. Um, and then ideally over the course of time, the, if, if it's contagious enough, you end up with people doing the job better, getting promoted through the ranks and that it might take years or even decades, but that that process of sort of attrition will leave you with institutions that are actually getting healthier instead of getting more set in their ways. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I mean, I'll strike a hopeful note here by saying that let's not forget what happened in the recent midterm elections in which not only uh, was there no red wave and all of that, but the the elected officials, you know, people who were running for secretary of state who could have been very bad influences because they would have been happy to invalidate elections or find votes or whatever it is that you know, Trump was looking for uh, the Georgia Secretary of State to do. They were largely defeated. I mean, how did people know enough to defeat them? How did people, you know, because of the news media, partially at least. So I think there has been some good stuff happening, and um, and and there should be credit given for that. So I I have sort of tried to um, adhere to my own studious neutrality between the total hopelessness and the like, maybe, maybe like it, it would take some hard work and maybe it's not likely, but we can, we can, we don't have to give up entirely on legacy political mm-hmm. media. Um, uh, there is one way I think we could maybe make some headway with just sort of direct interaction with the existing leadership of, of some of the, some of the biggest, uh, political news outlets in the country. Um, so you you wrote in your book about this sort of stubborn obsession many of those leaders have with this sort of fuzzy concept of objectivity. Um, and I think, understandably, when you challenge, anyone challenges the notion of objectivity in political reporting, um, journalists and, and editors like Marty Baron, to be specific, in, as uh, as the person in your book who you write about, their spidey senses go up, right? They assume that these critics are just trying to recruit them to to thumb the scale for a favored party or politician or policy or whatever. Um, and and I think some liberal or progressive journalism critics really are sort of just trying to work the refs, the way Republicans thirty years ago tried to work the refs, like just to make coverage more favorable to their team. Um, but if I could get someone like Marty to chat with me in, in, in this or any forum about this question, what I'd say is that at the end of the day, there's no objective way to make choices about what to cover, how to write about it, how much to write about it, where to place it in the, in the publishing hierarchy. Um, there's only subjective heuristics. Um, and the heuristics can be, you know, what political actors are making a lot of noise about. And I think that that's a really common tool editors use to determine where to allocate resources. But I think that that also just rewards, you know, whoever can be the most unscrupulous party or the, you know, the, you know, just kind of create a shitstorm about something and you'll get it covered. Right. Um, 
And what you were alluding to is like an, another heuristic could be like, what are people going to click on or, or what's going to make them buy a newspaper? And that can be highly distortive in its own way. Um, but a, a, a third alternative would be for, for journalists and editors to just accept. Like we, we rely on our reporting and our experience and expertise to determine the answers to those questions. Like what are we going to assign our reporters to cover? How are we going to place it? What kind of headlines are we going to write? And that doesn't mean that everything that the New York Times or Washington Post publish would be perfectly free of bias, but it would at least be something that they could then go out and justify. Like we thought this was important for these reasons and more important than these stories for those reasons. Um, and in a world like that, you would never have the New York Times committed to devoting equal column inches to like all of Donald Trump's scandals on the one hand, and then Hillary Clinton's emails on the other. Um, but it, I mean, I, I just went on for like five minutes trying to belabor my own point. It, it's not like a soundbite, right? Like objectivity gets tossed around in these sort of short well, pith, right. pithy critiques, but it, but it, it's a meaty concept. And I, I don't know that, that they, ever have really grappled with it in that way. I think one of the things that happens is that, you know, I mean, what Marty would say in this situation is just let the evidence lead the way. Keep an open mind as a reporter, as a news organization, as a news leader, as a top editor. Go into these things with an open mind and let the reporting, uh, you know, tell you what what's true. So don't, you know, start off with, uh, a point to prove. In fact, report against your own biases. And just as you would want a judge or a cop or someone else, you know, evaluating the evidence fairly and with an open mind, that's what sort of what you want from the news media as well. Um, I think another thing that happens is that people who are in charge don't hear a lot. They more or less choose not to hear a lot of the thoughtful criticism out there. And, you know, I don't think that they're, you know, sort of perusing Twitter or laughing at the pitch bots or saying, you know what, they're right about that. I think it's it's like there's a sort of they're sequestered from it in a lot of ways. And, I, you know, I don't know how to change that. I mean, one of the ways that it, it I think the idea of a public editor, which no longer exists at the Post or the Times or most places, it did sort of force people to say, okay, this is why we did this thing. And yes, we understand there are complaints. And then you have someone reasonably thoughtful like myself um, trying, to, <laughs> yep. trying, to, trying to synthesize it and put it in the very news organization. They couldn't really ignore that. You know, it's in your own paper. So I think in addition to, to just there being a lot of head, head in the sand stuff happening with, with the leaders of these institutions, there's a depressingly large number of them and you pilloried, I forget who it was, um, one of them just basically being like, well, we're getting criticized by the left and the right alike. We must be doing something right. And I mean, it's it's a, it's a horrible and stupid trope. And I can't imagine that if they devoted a moment's thought to it, they would actually think it justified anything about what they were doing. But it's widespread. And I think that when you hear someone say that, you think you are impossible to reach. Like, I can't persuade you because you aren't actually engage in any kind of reasoning. But but like where what where what Marty would say or what what you imagined he would say uh leaves me a little bit cold 
is that, you know, most of the reporting that the the Times and I, I believe the Post also did about the Hillary Clinton email stuff was, you know, not factually wrong. There were some errors, I think, but it was mostly correct. Um, it was just so and, overdone. Yes. It was so vastly right. and, overdone. Like the, it, the, the volume of coverage and the decision, you know, I don't know if it was conscious or not, but just like we need to have dedicate as much space in our publication to writing stories that are critical of both candidates is like, a, it, there is no objective way to do that. That is not an objective thing, right? Like Marty would say, go let the facts take you where they take you. But then you come back with the facts and you, ha- you have to decide how important is this, right? Like how important is it that there were also classified documents in Joe Biden's vice presidential records? Is it as important as the fact that Trump had a bunch of classified documents because he stole them? And I mean, I laying that out here with you right now, I think the answer is obviously no. And if I ran one of those institutions and my reporters came to me with this information, I wouldn't say let's bury it, but I would say, let's not treat this as equivalent to the Trump story. Let's not give it screaming front page treatment. And let's make clear in the story that we're going to pursue this wherever it leads, but that the differences between the the Biden case and the Trump case are so important that nobody should be misled into thinking that they're evidence of similar kind of criminal activity. Right. And, and yeah. I mean, even when, even when, and I think the the media did a pretty good job of saying these cases are very different. Trump did this, you know, there were many more documents. He 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 tried to hide them. He, you know, had to be subpoenaed to turn them over. And that wasn't the case with Biden. It wasn't so much about that, because that was pointed out. These are very different, but it had to do with, as you say, you know, the sort of amount, the display, the level of sort of glee with which it was it was greeted. I mean Two of the three evening uh, newscasts led with Biden's classified documents supposed scandal when it first broke. I mean, you know, that's a good maybe you think, oh, no one watches those. But actually, 25 million people watch it every night. Um, It's and it's an incredible um, sort of lens on what's the mainstream point of view. So if they're leading their broadcasts with it, they're making a big deal of it. Right. They're, they are saying without explicitly saying, we think this is just as important. Exactly. As the, right. Or and we, think it's, a, we think it's very important. And even though these cases are different, which we will tell you about, the fact is you come away with it, you know, a sort of viewer who's making dinner at the same time is sort of like, yeah, I guess Biden did that, too. So, right. I mean, right here. We think this is important, like that's there's nothing objective about we think this is anything, right? It's just a an assessment. It's it, it su- subjectivity is baked into it. It's news so judgment. I, it's news yeah, judgment. It's news judgment. Right. Like that's what we have. That's what we as reporters bring to our work that hopefully artificial intelligence can never <laughs> replace from us, right? Um and uh if so if you know if, if I went to to Marty and and laid out my thinking on this and he said what what you said. Just objectivity means you go out and you find the facts and you follow them where they lead and then the rest takes care of itself. And I say, well, no, like your judgment has to come in at some point and it can't ever be fully free from subjective decision making. And, you know, there are are political biases in everyone's heads. Uh, 
Do you think he would accept that? Do you think he would like chew on it at least? Sure. I mean, you know, and I guess I'd like to say, I don't like to set myself up against Marty because I probably (laughs) admire him more than any other figure of the past couple of decades. And I mean, when he retired, I said, and it was quoted in the New York Times that the country owed him a standing ovation. So let's just, you know, let's just put that on the record. Um, But I think what he would say and what many people would say is, yes, I, I, of course I have to, of course I have to use news judgment to decide in essence, what goes at the top of the homepage, what goes on the front page, what gets the emphasis, what's at the top of the broadcast, et cetera. And my news judgment is based on having an open mind and assessing the facts. It's a little circular. Right. Yeah. You, you, it is. It's a snake eating its own tail. Don't, don't try to argue with it. I've got news judgment. I've got the facts. I've got evidence, and that's, that's the way it is. I um, I'm picking on Marty because I think he's an exemplar of this, and like he's about as best as we could hope for to lead a major newsroom, uh, like like the Washington Post. If he can't be brought around to the to the view that like, look, there's no way to make these kinds of choices in a purely objective fashion. And so we should just fall back on our, you know, when we justify coverage decision, like we should just use the fact that we're reporters and we have a lot of experience doing this to, to determine where we place things. And thus- yeah, and I, I don't think he would disagree with that. And, you know, one of the ways that you, you know, one example is when January 6th happened, how were the protesters or mob, how were they characterized? Did, you know, were they called, you know, demonstrators or were they called members of a violent mob? I mean, those were decisions that had to be made in the moment based on all kinds of news judgment and the facts and what was going on. Um, And I mean, you rely on people who are making those decisions to be, you know, to have a, a, a certain amount of wisdom in the way they characterize these things. So, and, and I guess the proof is sort of in the pudding that the, you know, looking back on 2016, at least as far as the Hillary Clinton email stories go is, is that is viewed, I think rightly in hindsight as something that, that trickled down from the New York times and the Washington post didn't sort of fall prey to the same kind of hysteria. Right. And I mean, the post, you know, to its credit, put out a book written by two of its reporters in, I think, August of 2016, so months before the election, which was called Trump Revealed. And it was like all about all the problems with Trump. So it wasn't as if, but, and the and the email thing, you know, I mean, the, the way to look back on that is if you've ever seen, and I think a lot of people have these kind of graphics, which show, you know, what are the words that were most associated with these campaigns? And the Hillary Clinton one, the hugest word was email. And with Trump, it was like uh, immigration, presidential speech, you know, leader, all this stuff. I mean, that's that was an analysis. That's a sort of a graphical proof of what was being talked about and what was getting across to people. So, you know, I think you have to it wasn't just the news media that made that happen, but a lot of it was. That word cloud kind of haunts my dreams even <laughs> seven years It's later. really very, very bad. And the it's fact, so shocking. And the fact that there hasn't really been a reckoning with that coverage that I know of, and I have asked the question, you know, a true like, you know, industry-wide or even New York Times-specific 
reckoning with what went wrong and how we can never let this happen again. The way there was, by the way, with the weapons of mass destruction coverage. Yeah. I see that as a problem. Yeah, I do too. I yeah, you wrote about Amy Chozik in your book, and I I really don't want to like single out lots of individual no, journalists. No. Who, um, but I, she wrote a book. I think it was her. Yes, Ooh. she wrote we'll a cut book. this if I'm wrong. Right, and she, in it she was like, in hindsight, I you know I I just got swept up in this, and it was right. And, no, and I think and Amy like, Amy did sort of in her book kind of uh, fess up to it. But I'm talking about more of an institutional right, point right. of view, which is, you know, Amy's not doing that job anymore. But there now are lots of others who are going to cover the next election. And there are editors. And have they, you know, what have they actually learned from it? Right. And, you know, and, and because there was no institutional uh, accountability effort. After, at least not a public, at least not a public facing one. Right. Um that leaves the rest of us who who cover and care about elections feeling pretty snake bit. And so, I mean, I'm the, there hasn't been that many presidential. There's been one presidential election since then. But right. I think it's, unless and until there is, as elections approach, we all start to worry, you know, is this going to happen again? Are we going to see a repeat of what happened in 2016? Um, right. And that's why, you know, Balloon Gate and the classified documents and all this other stuff, you know, gives you pause. Although I don't think really that any of them will or could ever measure up to that. I don't think that we have found the, you know, like the Hunter Biden email thing doesn't seem like it's, or laptop thing does not seem like it's got the same purchase as the Hillary Clinton email thing. But when the Hillary Clinton email thing broke, I was like, well, this is not a great story for her, but I can't imagine that it's going to decide the outcome of the election. And I turned out to be super wrong about that. So I think there's an unknowable aspect to it, but like, do you, do you think that it's, we should worry that it'll happen again? And if we should worry, then like, what's the case for, for, hope. I mean, I think that I, even though there might not have been a big reckoning and certainly not a public facing one or an editor's note or any of that stuff, I, I do think that people recognize, I think that journalists and top journalists do recognize that that story got way out of hand and that they probably do know that that cannot happen again. Um, I mean, I think the way the Hunter Biden laptop story was handled by the mainstream press when it first broke is is an example of that. It was, you know, maybe to a fault sort of um, kept at arm's length and we're not going to we don't, you know, a lot of skepticism applied. That may have been uh, kind of a reaction. All right. I mean, I buy that. I could see that there there are now more countervailing pressures against getting swept up in a feeding frenzy like that than existed seven years ago. I'll take it. Um, yeah, and take the I'll, win. I'll, yeah, and I'll leave it there too. I, I, I want to thank you for spending so much of your time with us. You're very welcome. It's fun to talk with you. Yeah, you too. So here's a quick confession that'll probably come as no surprise to many of you. I entered this conversation pretty aligned with the James Fallows view that the political deaths of mainstream national news outlets are pretty well beyond fixing. And I'm honestly still pretty pessimistic that they could be fixed. It isn't a coincidence at all that in 18 years I've spent working in this profession, I never joined a big media company's political team. But I really liked Margaret's point that 
it's worth trying more things that might improve the way those reporters and editors approach journalism before just concluding that they're beyond saving. Part of it is as a kind of law of physics thing, I don't think it's impossible to imagine political deaths at the New York Times or CNN or anywhere else rooting their work in something more justifiable than false balance or maximizing eyeballs or anything else. Leadership matters, staffing matters. The other part of it, or another part of it anyway, is that even if we ultimately conclude mainstream political journalism is beyond saving, it's not going away anytime soon. And the better institutions that might replace them will take tons of time and effort and resources to build. I know at least a little bit about that. And so before giving up or, or even telling the public these institutions can't be trusted to give the public the straight dope, it's probably worth redoubling efforts to nudge those existing institutions in a better direction. And I think elected Democrats could take a leading role here. I know because I've tried very hard that influencing the how of political journalism from within as one voice among very few doesn't get you very far. But politicians are a different matter. Like right now, as you listen to this, mainstream media outlets are preparing stories on how both sides are digging into the debt limit fight. When they know, because it's become a matter of routine, that what's happening is Republicans are threatening to destroy the economy unless Democrats enact GOP policy priorities. Democrats could play press critic about that. They could call that kind of coverage spineless, and they'd be totally justified. And maybe it wouldn't do anything other than make individual reporters or media outlets defensive. But I think it might leave an imprint on them. It might even make them more reluctant to repeat that misleading framing in their next stories. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich-Frank. Evan Sutton mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Fotopoulos.